Our reading is from Paul's letter to Philippians chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the same name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord. We, as a church, have been in a sermon series. It's about becoming the people of God the church that God has a vision for. What we talked about, if you've been with us over the past two months, is this. Jesus was forming a community of people for himself. And when I say a community of people, in the first century Jewish mindset, that didn't just mean kind of we live near each other or we have a common interest. It involved deep covenantal commitment to be a community of people in that first century Jewish world. And the one that Jesus was forming was built around a common confession that Jesus himself was the Messiah and God, and a common mission to advance God's kingdom in the world. In Philippians 2 that Claire read a few minutes ago, Paul's climactic hymn in his letter to the Philippians Paul gives a vision for a Christ-embodying church community. And I'm going to go back and reread some of these verses and walk us through a little bit of this passage before we end our time in God's Word this morning. In Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, we read Paul calling the Philippians to be a different kind of community than they may have experienced. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And you know, the key phrase that I want us to look on, and I'm going to do this with a couple of these verses, is how Paul says, in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Become a community of people that are filled with humility and a generosity of spirit that counts others more significant than yourselves. And that more significant doesn't mean that you think of others as really great and you think of yourself as terrible. It does have to do with how we view and evaluate other people. And basically what Paul is saying when he says, treat them as more significant, he means treat them as weighty, as important, as worthy and valuable. Your view of other people in your church community 
should be that you view them as God does. How does God view all people? Well, he made everyone in his image. Every one of us is an image bearer of God. And so regardless of your talent, your abilities, or your inabilities, the color of your skin, your intelligence, your strength, your beauty, your bank account, we are all equally infinitely valuable because we are made in God's image. God declares that we are eternal beings meant to live forever, whom He loves desperately. That we should see other people with that lens, to view them as weighty and significant and eternal beings. C.S. Lewis sums it up beautifully in The Weight of Glory when he warns us about treating people lightly. He writes, it is a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you may talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. There are no ordinary people. You have never met a mere mortal. It is mortals with whom we joke, work, marry, snub, and exploit. To do this involves having true humility or gospel humility. It's looking to God for our significance, our love, our assurance. So true humility is not thinking less of yourself, as you've heard that. It's thinking of yourself less, right? So you're no longer comparing and competing with others to feel okay about yourself. In fact, you're no longer thinking so much about yourself at all. You can be others-focused. Tim Keller, in his short book, put it this way, gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. So Paul is calling the church in Philippi to be a community of humility and generosity of spirit that treats others with weightiness and significance. But the problem is that we don't do that by our nature. In verse 3, at the beginning of it, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. This is verse 3a. And that word conceit is a funny word. It actually is a combination of two words. Can you jump to the next slide? And one more. And one more. <laughs> Boom! Nailed it. That word conceit is a funny combination of two words, and I don't like to do language stuff here, but we're going to do it because it's helpful, because it's what Paul is doing throughout this whole passage. He's talking about weightiness and emptiness throughout this whole thing. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. And that word conceit is kino, meaning empty, and doxa, glory. So don't be filled with empty glory. Now, each of us lives for glory. Glory literally means weightiness, heaviness, lasting significance. All of us build our glory, our weightiness on something, our reputation, success, the ability to influence people, people's opinion of us. So we're always comparing and needing to be noticed. But as Paul says, that sort of a glory that we naturally tend towards is kino or empty. It is fleeting and weightless and nothing. Paul says the kind of glory we tend to pursue on our own is an empty or weightless glory. Years ago, when I was a second grader, I played football. It was my first year of football. I was on the Vienna Raiders. We were terrible. We finished 
three and four or two and five at the end of the season, but as every team at that point got to do, you got to go to a bowl game. And my bowl game was the Copper Bowl. We played some team from Fairfax. Nobody remembers them. They weren't very good either, but they beat us. At the end, my three and five team, who had just lost the one bowl game we played in, got trophies because everybody got a trophy. First place team got a trophy. Second place team got a trophy. And I got a second place trophy. What Paul is saying is this. The way we tend to live our lives is we go around with our achievements, like, hey, you made partner, or our bank account, or you got into a certain college, or you have a lot of friends, or your kids are doing amazing, and we hold it up and we just say, look at me, look at how amazing I am, and it's no better than carrying around a second grade, essentially last place trophy, saying, isn't this amazing? And Paul is like, no, it is empty glory. We have an overinflated sense of ourselves. That's what kinodoxa means. Our ego is constantly being blown up and often is swollen like a balloon ready to pop. And that's why we're always so fragile. Easily hurt and offended or guarded and defensive or vindictive because everyone is a threat to our ego, to our overinflated and fragile glory. So the question being something like this, why are you so easily offended if you don't get credit for something? Why are you distressed if you aren't invited? Because kino doxa, empty glory. Why are we always comparing, sizing ourselves up, making snap judgments of people when we see them? He's not as funny as he thinks he is. She's not that pretty. Oh yeah, he's a good lawyer, but not that good. Empty glory. If someone better at whatever it is that we value and build our life on enters the room, we either shrink or we want to destroy them because of empty glory. It's the nature of our pride, our ego, and its empty glory conceits. C.S. Lewis says in a second writing, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are simply proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. Instead of selfish ambition and empty glory, Paul calls the Philippians to live lives of true weight and lasting significance. He says in verse 5, your mindset... Have this mind among yourself, this attitude, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What is that? Who was Christ Jesus? Verse 6, Christ Jesus, who though he was God in the form of God, did not count his equality, this is verse 6, did not count his equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus Christ did not count his equality with God a thing to be grasped. Can you jump to the next slide? So Jesus did not count his equality with God a thing to be grasped. And that word grasped is another one of the words I want us to hold on to for a second. So my English Standard Translation has a footnote that takes that word grasp, which could also be translated cling, and says it literally means a thing to be held onto for advantage. It was used to talk about the plunder that a soldier was allowed to take if he had bid in a battle. You enter the town, you'd conquered it, and you could take away whatever you wanted, people, cattle, money, jewelry. It was yours by right because you had fought. 
It's yours. Take it. And this is saying Jesus did not count his equality with God, his godness, as something to hold on to for his own benefit or advantage, or as, as Tom Wright puts it in his translation of the Bible, as something he ought to exploit for his own selfish good or benefit. So think about it this way. What this is saying is Jesus, and you can read the Gospels and know this too, Jesus never used his godness his position as the Son of God, or his power and authority as the Son of God. He never used his omnipotence, omnipresence, all those omnis. He never used his power and authority. He never used it for his own benefit during his life on this earth. When he was tempted in the wilderness, Satan tried to get him to use his power for his own good. Hey, you're hungry. Take this stone and turn it into bread. What's wrong with eating bread? Or throw yourself off the temple. The angels will catch you. In fact, you could catch yourself. And then everyone will see it and they'll be like, you are the Messiah. Isn't that easier than going to a cross, Jesus? You are God. Just use that power. If I were Jesus, I would have definitely been tempted to use it in Nazareth. Nazareth is where Jesus grew up. And when he reveals to them that he is the Messiah, he's on this, in, there on the Sabbath and he, he reads from, this, uh, from Isaiah, and he, he basically says, I am the Messiah. And all the people of Nazareth are like, you're just Joseph and Mary's son. We saw you grow up. You're not the Messiah. But think about it. Jesus has all power, right? He could have called down lightning. He could have struck a couple of them blind. He could have zapped them. I mean, literally just been like, oh, you don't think I'm the Messiah, do you? <laughs> Don't tell me you wouldn't have done it if you had that power. But Jesus doesn't. He lets them deride him and chase him away, rejecting him as the Messiah. And the place, of course, where he should have used his power, if he was like any of us, it was when he was hanging on the cross. We say that Jesus is God Almighty, the creator of the universe, the second person of the Trinity. And that means this. As he is hanging on the cross, being tortured, naked and crucified, fully ashamed, vulnerable, suffering, people are mocking him. Oh, if you are the son of God, come down from there. Not only could he have come down from there, but actually the people who were mocking him and the soldiers who crucified him, they actually depended on Jesus' generosity to live. He was the sustainer of their life. Their heart stops beating if he's like, and you're done. So right before the first soldier is about to hit him, he could have ended the guy's life. The soldier who crucifies him depends on Jesus and his generosity to carry out what he was doing. In contrast, as one commentator put it, in contrast to the natural human tendency to say yes to every opportunity to exploit personal advantages of position and power for self-purposes, Jesus said no to the exploitation of his position and power for his own selfish pursuits. You know, you and I are not God. We're not divine. We don't have zapping power. But we all have a divinity or divinities, meaning this, we all have power of some sort. We all have resources, abilities, connections. Could be you have a lot of money, 
could be good with people. You have a lot of friends. You have a nice home. You have a small home. You have food on your table. We all have resources, kindness, intelligence, just being present in people's lives. And what verse 6 is saying in the model of Jesus is to always use all of our abilities, all of our resources, all of our power, any strength at all that you have in obedience to God and for the good of others and not for yourself. So think about it. You may have a good amount of wealth. It might be easy for you to make money. And so in our culture, we'd say, well, you could use that to be secure. You could use it on yourself. It's yours. You earned it. You're good at it. You worked hard. It's yours. Do what you want with it. But to follow that model of Jesus is to open our hands with our money. Open our hands to God and always use it for the good and blessing of others. You might be the kind of person that's really good with people. Some of you are just amazing with people. You have a high social IQ. Now, in your natural orientation, you will use that for your own good. You will use it because people will like you. You can read them. You can meet their needs. You just have a sense of people. And you can use that high social IQ, your people abilities, to get a good job, to get a lot of friends, to have people love and adore you. Oh, he is amazing. He's so fun to be around. He's the best. And to feed your ego. Or you can use that same ability to spend time with people, to love people, to be present with people and show love to somebody who lacks those friends or help them to get connected. You can use it for yourself. You can use it for others. If you're in a position of power, you're an executive, an owner, a pastor, a father, whatever, a teacher, Jesus is saying, take all of that, all of whatever your position is, and use it for the good of others, to boost them, to provide for them, for their benefit. And of course, the opposite not just to use it for ourselves, but to exploit our power, our position, and take advantage of others is evil. We can do this in a home when a spouse or a parent is physically stronger than the other one. You can threaten or fear or hurt people if you're the strongest one in the house. and make demands and take whatever you want because you're physically stronger. Exploiting other people with your power. Or you may be a spouse or a parent who's just mentally sharp, emotionally capable of manipulating people. And get your own way. Exploiting them with your words, your criticism, your demands. And of course, when the church has done this, or leaders in the church have done this, and have exploited the vulnerable, it is the opposite of what Jesus does. It is anti-Christ. And it is evil. Whenever we exploit a position or a power or an ability by taking advantage of somebody else, or treating as nothing someone who is glorious and immortal and incredibly valuable in God's eyes, we are doing what Satan does. Jesus does not do that. He does not take advantage of his own power for his own benefit, but always lays it out. In fact, it goes a step further in verses 7 and 8 when it says he empties himself 
Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is verse 7 and 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In verse 7, it says that he emptied himself, and that word emptied is, is the word echinoso. So earlier, we talked about how each of us is conceited. We are kino doxa, kino meaning empty glory. Jesus has all the glory, but he echinosos himself. He empties himself of all of that glory. He pours himself up. He gives up his position at the right hand of God. He gives up what is his by right the power to control everything at his will. He's not grasping or clinging to his position or his power. And he empties himself so much that he humbles himself, becoming human, becoming a servant and slave of all to the point of death on a cross, a criminal's execution. The God of the universe empties himself so much that he becomes incredibly vulnerable. And think about what happens to him on the cross Jesus, the all-powerful creator and judge of the universe, is exploited by the powerful and the wicked. He is shamed, he is abused, and he is murdered. And if you have been the kind of person who has ever been exploited, Jesus gets it. He walked through that life that you have walked through as well. Not the exact same, but he understands, and he's a God who wants to be there with you. But we don't get Jesus echinosoing himself, that emptying. Why? Because we're desperate for recognition. We want to be wanted. We want to be noticed. We want to be respected. But time and again, Jesus overthrows every person's priorities, every culture's values. The kingdom that Jesus came to build is not a kingdom like our natural hearts or any kingdom in this world. It is an upside-down kingdom. He says the first, you want to be first, be last. You want to be great, be servant of all. You want to gain life, life to the full, lose your life for my sake and for others. Do you want glory? Empty yourself. Pour yourself out. And I believe this is what you and I individually and collectively as a church community are called to be. The Christ Church Vienna is called to be a community of people who pours herself out in a culture of humility and generosity of spirit with people we disagree with, with people we might not like in any other circle, to always elevate and see the significance of every other person. And we are called, as I had talked about nine or eight or nine weeks ago at the beginning of this, I believe that we are called to be a community of safety and of healing, to be a home and a hospital, a place where people can grow up and feel safe to wrestle with their doubts, to figure out whether they can buy into this gospel of Jesus Christ, and a hospital where all of us can find the healing that God wants to offer us for all that we have gone through in this world. How do we do that? How do we become a place of safety and healing, of humility and generosity? Well, thankfully, it's not just about trying harder. In verse 5, Paul says, have this mind that is yours in Christ Jesus. What he does not say is, I want you to become just like Jesus. Look at the amazing things Jesus did, now go and do likewise. He says, you have a mind that is yours in Christ Jesus, 
a Christ-transformed mind live out of that mind? And we get that because at the very beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul writes that before he gets into all of his ex, you know, commands to them, he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from His love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. And here's the deal. What he's saying when he says that is, you do have these things. You have Jesus Christ. You have the comfort of His love, the encouragement. You are loved and embraced by Jesus Christ, and you have fellowship with God, the Holy Spirit, who dwells in you. So, don't just look to what Jesus did, how He emptied Himself, didn't grasp things, dies on a cross, and feel really bad. So, go and be really kind and try really hard to be really, really kind because now you feel bad, because Jesus is so much better than you. What Paul is saying is, if you're going to pour yourself out for others, you need to be filled up. And when you turn back to the source, Jesus Christ, who died for you and loves you and embraces you regardless of your failures and your sins and your struggles and what God sees that you've done and that you're embarrassed for other people to see, you get filled up. Filled up so that when you need to pour out for somebody else, it's nothing. If you have $10 billion in your bank account, what is somebody owing you $15,000? That's the parable, the unmerciful servant. God is saying, I have given you a $10 billion bank account of love and grace and embrace and mercy you can pour out to others. But in order to do so, we need to go back again and again to the well to have an identity that is formed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and not by our empty glory attempts at trying to fill ourselves up. So we rest in who we are because of what Jesus has done for us. And this is your identity. You are loved, you are accepted, you are worthy because of Jesus. In Matthew 3, in Matthew 3, the Father says this about His Son, Jesus. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is also your gospel identity if you are in Christ. You could put your own name and your own gender in there as well. And hear God saying again and again, Johnny, you are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Your name, you are my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. That is who you are. We need to go to Jesus again and again to let our hearts be filled up. And only when we are filled in Christ can we be the sort of people who self-empty and live a life worth living of humility and generosity and becoming a community of safety and healing for all people. I'm going to end with a prayer, but first just hear from verses 9 through 11. You know, I... There's a lot of fear and darkness in this world, and some of you have dealt with a lot of darkness and fear, and you wonder, is there ever going to be justice? You know, there's a phrase that's used in, in politicized argument circles of like, well, you want to be on the right side of history, right? Here's, here's where history's going. Therefore, God has highly exalted him bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Do not be afraid of losing power or position in your own life. Jesus Christ is Lord. And do not despair the wicked. They do not win. Jesus does. Let's pray. God, we need the hope of the Christ who came and humbled himself and emptied himself for us. We need that hope of his love extending out to us to fill us up. And we need the hope of the risen Christ who has conquered all and is Lord and Savior, who will come again to judge the living and the dead. And so we bend our knee already and confess that you are Lord and trust in your justice and goodness and truth and eternal victory. In your name we pray. Amen. Alone in my sorrow and dead in my sin Lost without hope with no place to begin Your love made all and mercy come in When death was arrested and my life began Ash was redeemed only You have made us new.